Our text this evening is Colossians chapter 4 and the verses 2 to 6. The title of the sermon, What Does the Speech of the New Man Sound Like? What Does the Speech of the New Man Sound Like? When I was a university student, uh, I attended a Bible study for youths and young adults, and everyone there in that study was either in his or her late teens or early 20s. There were about, I think, 10 of us in attendance, uh, and I knew most of them, but there were also a couple of newcomers in our midst that day. And during the study, someone made a light-hearted comment, and everyone in the room started laughing. Nothing wrong with that, of course, except that I thought I heard a child's laughing, a child's voice and a child's laughter. And I immediately looked around the room and I even looked behind me to check whether there were any children there that wasn't aware of, but I didn't see any. That's strange, I thought. Here's a room with only grown-ups, but why am I hearing the sound of a child laughing? Maybe I heard wrongly. But then later on, I heard it again, and suddenly it dawned upon me that one of the newcomers, a lady in her early 20s, had a laughter that sounded just like a child. At least that's what it sounded to me. She wasn't faking it or anything like that. That was just how she naturally laughed. It was strange. It took me a while to get used to it. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, of course. Every one of us has our own unique voice and sound and even unique laughter. God made us all differently, and that's all right. But you know what is not all right? is when a person who claims to be a Christian doesn't sound like one in terms of the content and the manner of his speech or her speech. The Lord Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. In other words, a person's speech is a, is a good indicator and a reflection of his spiritual state or what is going on in his heart. So what then does the speech of a true believer or the speech of a new man sound like? And that is what we want to consider this evening. Remember that we are in the more practical se section of this book of Colossians, at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul calls us to seek those things which are above, uh, where Christ is to set our affections on things above rather than on things upon the earth. That doesn't mean that we just dream about heaven day and night and have our heads in the clouds uh, such that we are of no earthly use. No, the apostle goes on to tell us in the rest of chapter 3 what the heavenly-minded person or the new man looks like. First, he is the person who puts to death all forms of lust and perverted love. He puts away all forms of sinful anger and hatred and all lies and deception and all barriers that separate people from people. Secondly, he puts on those characteristics that are found in the Lord Jesus himself, like compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, and charity. He seeks the peace and the unity of God's people. He allows the word of Christ to dwell richly in him, in all wisdom, and whatever he does, he does in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then in our sermon last week, 
We looked at what the new man looks like at home. We considered the conduct and attitude of uh, Christian wives, of husbands, of children, fathers, slaves, and masters. But this brings us to our passage this evening on the speech of the new man. I'd like us to look at it in four parts. First, we have prayerful and thankful speech, verses 2 and 3. Then secondly, gospel speech, verses 3 and 4, followed by consistent speech, verse 5. And finally, gracious speech, verse 6. So prayerful and thankful, gospel, consistent and gracious speech. First, prayerful and thankful speech. Verse 2, continue in prayer. Remember that Paul had just spoken about the various duties and responsibilities and indeed the demands that are placed on Christians in the home. And earlier on, he has described the new man in terms of what he puts off and what he puts on. And if we have seriously and carefully considered what is required of each one of us, regardless of our age or our station in life, then we would quickly realize that none of us will be able to meet up to that standard, not even for one moment. If you can read the whole of chapter 3 and you can say at the end of it, no problem, easily done, then either you don't know yourself very well or you don't understand really what is required or perhaps you are simply overconfident, which is not a good thing. But if you have a realistic understanding of who you are, of what you are called to do, then you would surely sense your own utter inadequacies and shortfalls. And so the Apostle immediately follows up his instructions with this call to prayer. Not only to pray, but to continue steadfastly in prayer. Or we could even translate this to devote yourself to prayer. This means you not only recognize your desperate need for help, but you stretch out your hand, and your hand is totally empty, and you grab hold of the Lord's hand, and you beg of Him for the grace that you need in order to live the Christian life in its nuts and bolts. O Lord, you have called me to be a Christ-like husband, but all I have succeeded in doing is being a selfish, uncaring, proud, and bitter husband. I don't and I can't love my wife as you have loved the church and given yourself for her. Please have mercy on me and on our family. O Lord, I have made an utter mess with my children. You have called me to bring them up in the fear and nurture and admonition of the Lord, but all I've done is teach them how to be a legalist or antinomian. Please have mercy on me. You cling on, you see, as it were, to the garment of the Lord Jesus. You would not let him go until he blesses you. You devote yourself continually in prayer. But you know something? That is not the easiest of things to do. Someone once said the easiest thing about prayer is quitting. And so we need to plead with the Lord for strength just to be able to carry on pleading with the Lord. And then besides continuing in prayer, verse 2 says, watch in the same with thanksgiving, or being watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. Prayerfulness and, and watchfulness, they go together. 
to be watchful is to be on alert. The picture is that of a watchman or, or a guard who is on duty. Uh, not only must the watchman keep awake uh, while he's at his post, but he is also to be on lookout for intruders or some or any suspicious activity. So to the Christian, when he prays, he is to watch out for the things that hinder his prayer life, as well as to watch out for the Lord's answers to his prayer. One of the big problems in prayer is that when the Lord does answer our prayers, we are unmindful and we are unaware of them. And so one of the best ways to, to overcome that problem is to be thankful. And the apostle ends verse 2 with the phrase, with thanksgiving, or if you like, with an attitude of thankfulness and gratitude. Our prayers should always be filled with thanksgiving for the things that the Lord has done and is doing in our lives. There is a remarkable example of this in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 during the time of King Jehoshaphat. Uh, the southern kingdom, king of Judah, was attacked by the huge combined army of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And Jehoshaphat gathered the nation together and he pleaded with the Lord for his help. He then appointed singers to go before the army and to say, Praise the Lord or give thanks to the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. In other words, they were to give praise and thanks to the Lord even before the enemies came and the fighting started and the victory was secure. And so the person who has been made new will continue in prayer. He will be watchful in it with thanksgiving. You could say that the new man will have the speech of prayer and thanksgiving. And while Paul is on the subject of prayer, uh, he brings up one thing that he would like the Colossian Christians to pray for him and his co-workers about. Verse 3, with or at the same time, praying also for us. So you continue in prayer, but at the same time, remember also to pray for us. Uh, don't forget to remember me and my co-laborers in your prayers. Paul greatly valued the prayer of the saints. He honestly believed in the power and the efficacy of prayer. Unlike some Christians who, who only pay lip service to the importance of prayer, but who don't really believe in it, they may talk a lot about prayer, but they hardly ever pray themselves, but not the Apostle Paul. Furthermore, Paul never thought of himself as being above the prayers of others for him. See, sometimes Christians have this wrong idea. They think that those who are very experienced or very matured in the faith or what we might call the masters of the Christian life, that they don't really need other people to pray for them. They can get on just fine by themselves, whether or not prayers are offered on their behalf. But that is not the Apostle Paul. Listen to what one commentator wrote of him. Stunning, isn't it, that a man of Paul's spiritual caliber and gifting felt so desperately dependent on the prayers of others for the effectiveness of his ministry. Now, if Paul so earnestly desired and sought the prayers of other believers on his behalf, how much more should we be doing that? Well, what was it that Paul wanted them to pray for him about? Remember that he was still in prison at this present time in Rome. And if you were in prison, what would you ask your fellow believers 
to pray for good health, a quick release, better food, a better cell, perhaps. Well, the second part of verse 3 tells us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ. Now, we, before we consider what this statement means, I'd like to just pause for a moment and to talk about the relationship between prayer and the work of Christ's kingdom. Or more specifically, let's ask the question, why is there a need to pray that God would open a door for Paul to speak? Why doesn't God just do it himself, just open the door? Why does he use this roundabout method? I mean, think of all the steps that are involved. First, he had to instruct Paul through the inspiration of the Spirit to write these words of our text to instruct the Colossians to pray. And then the letter had to be given to Tychicus to bring from Paul in Rome to the church at Colossae. Then the Colossians, having received the letter, they had to read it. And in particular, they would read about Paul's prayer request. And then they pray. And finally, the Lord, in answer to their prayer, opens the door of utterance for the apostle and for his co-workers. Couldn't the Lord have done it much more quickly and efficiently? Of course, of course he could have, but he didn't. Why? For his own glory and for the good of his people. Several verses in the Bible teach us that. For example, Psalm 50, verse 15 says, the Lord says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. And again in John 14, 13, the Lord Jesus says, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And finally, 2 Corinthians 1.11, He also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. The idea there is that when many pray and God answers their prayers, then many will give thanks and praise to the Lord and God's glory will be more clearly manifested. And not only is God's glory more clearly manifested, but we ourselves benefit from having prayed and having our prayers answered. Listen to what one author wrote. God suspends his work on our prayers, not because he can't do it alone, but because our prayers highlight our dependence and his supply. We are humbled as dependent and he is exalted as depended upon. Not only does he get the glory for being depended upon, but we get the gladness for being dependent. We could say that prayer is, is a, is a win-win situation. God gets the glory in giving us what we need and ask for, and we get the gladness in receiving what God gives. God gets the glory, we get the gladness. So the first thing we learn from our text about the speech of the new man it is, is that filled with prayer and with thanksgiving. But secondly, we learn that the new man's speech is also full of the gospel. Verses 3 and 4, praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. 
So Paul Great's desire, even while he is suffering, languishing in prison, is that he would be able to speak the mystery of Christ. This phrase, mystery of Christ, refers to the glorious gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And not only that, but that this salvation is for all people, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. All who believe in Christ will be saved. They will all enjoy the full rights and privileges of membership in the covenant. Remember that one of the big issues in the first century was whether Gentile believers had an equal standing and status in the kingdom of God with the Jewish believers, or whether they are to be regarded as second-class citizens until they were circumcised or they observed the laws, uh, dietary laws of the Old Testament and so on. The glorious gospel, the mystery of Christ says there is no distinction, no disparity among those who are saved by grace and united to Christ. All are one in Christ and he dwells equally in all. The Apostle Paul had a great love, a great zeal for this gospel and he wanted to make it known to many people in the world. And not only that, but to make it known with all clarity and simplicity, which is what is meant by the phrase that I may make it manifest or clear. Paul didn't want anything to hinder him from clearly proclaiming and speaking the truth of the gospel. It's after all very tempting, you see, for, for a person like Paul, who had such a great mind, so much knowledge, it's easy for him to launch off into some philosophical discourse or to engage in some intellectual debate with his hearers. Perhaps while he's preaching or speaking and someone in the audience asked a question or made a remark that might distract him or, or lead him away from what is of first importance, even the gospel. He didn't want that to happen. He wanted to have a clear mind and he wanted clear speech so as to be able to proclaim the gospel in all its clarity. The words at the end of verse 4, as I ought to speak, remind us that Paul had an obligation to speak the gospel. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 9, For necessity is laid upon me. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. In other words, proclaiming the gospel is not an option for the apostle. It's not something that he did only when it's safe or when it is comfortable or easy or convenient for him to do. The phrase ought to speak also reminds us of the need to be faithful, faithful in terms of the content of the message. You see, things like the fear of men or a concern for one's reputation or one's safety can easily lead someone to keep silent or else to alter the message, to change it in order to make it more acceptable and less offensive. Paul knew all about the dangers, the pains of being faithful to the gospel, especially in a hostile environment. In fact, he was in prison that very moment because of the gospel. We see that at the end of verse 3, isn't it? To speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds. The apostle, you see, wasn't in prison because he had stolen something or because he had murdered someone or stirred up rebellion against the authorities. Instead, he was in prison for one reason, because he was faithful 
to the gospel and he boldly proclaimed it. He was in chains and he had many of his privileges stripped away from him because he wanted people to hear about the person and work of Christ. Now we learn something very important here about the way we should respond to suffering. Paul didn't become bitter or angry or filled with self-pity because of what happened. Uh, he didn't complain to God uh, for allowing him to be in that miserable place. He didn't say, if this is what I get for faithfully proclaiming the gospel, then I don't want to do it anymore. Not at all. In fact, he even asked the, the Colossian Christians to pray for him so that he may have many more opportunities to preach the gospel. In other words, Paul was desirous of doing more of the very thing that got him into prison in the first place. Far from becoming angry or bitter against the Lord, the apostle believed that the sovereign God is able to bring much good out of evil, just like what he did in the life of Joseph or so many of his faithful saints in history. And so the second thing we learn about the new man's speech is that it is filled with the gospel. It is filled with the gospel not only in terms of our speaking the good news to unbelievers, but also in terms of how we speak to fellow believers uh, in our, all of our difficulties and how we would want them to pray for us. But next, we move on to the third part of our text on consistent speech. Consistent speech, verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. I've entitled this third part, Consistent Speech, because it is crucial, you see, for a believer to walk or live in a way that is consistent with what he says. It will do no good if a person conducts himself in a way that contradicts what he claims to believe about Christ and the gospel. Here the apostle is thinking especially about our witness to the world, which is why he says, toward them that are without, or outsiders, referring to unbelievers. It's not enough just to speak the gospel with clarity and with boldness and with faithfulness, but you also need to live in a way that demonstrates to them the truth of what you are saying. There needs to be a consistency between one's conduct and one's speech in order for one's witness to be effective. A good example of this is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter, writing to Christian wives who had unbelieving husbands, says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation or conduct of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation or conduct coupled with fear. One very ancient writer puts it this way, unspoken acting is more powerful than unperformed speaking. Unspoken acting is more powerful than unperformed speaking speaking. In particular, the apostle calls us to conduct ourselves with wisdom. Now remember that wisdom is not the same as knowledge. The two are closely related, but they are not the same. Wisdom is the ability to apply one's knowledge of the Word of God 
to concrete situations, decisions, and realities of everyday life. It's not enough just to have knowledge. One must have wisdom to rightly and properly make use of that knowledge. And we need much wisdom, don't we, when dealing with unbelievers. For example, we need to know when to speak and when to shut our mouths. We also need to know how to become all things to all men without compromising on truth and holiness. It's not always easy to do that, to keep the balance. We need much wisdom. And that is why in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul prayed for the Colossians that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then finally, at the end of verse 5, Paul says, redeeming the time, or as some translations have it, making the best use of the time, snapping up every opportunity that comes. The idea here is that we should not waste these opportunities that come our way to speak and to conduct ourselves with wisdom, especially among unbelievers. Someday, the opportunity to bear witness, both in our words and in our deeds, will be gone. Let us seek to make good use of every encounter that we have. So the third thing we learn about the speech of the new man is that it is consistent speech. But fourth and finally, we learn that it is gracious speech. Verse 6, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. The apostle is not speaking just about preaching the gospel here or witnessing, but about our ordinary speech, our everyday conversation. He tells us that our speech should always be with grace or always be gracious. Here the focus is not on the content of our speech, but more on the manner or the way in which we speak. To be gracious when we speak means to, to speak with gentleness and kindness and meekness and thoughtfulness and tr truthfulness and sensitivity. In short, to speak in a loving manner. Matthew Henry wrote of the Christian speech, though it be not always of grace, it must be always with grace. And though the matter of our discourse be that which is common, yet there must be an air of piety upon it, and it must be in a Christian manner. So what he's saying is that even if we're not talking about specifically Christian things or spiritual things, still the way that we speak is very important. Ultimately, to speak with grace is to speak like our Saviour himself. For we are told in Luke 4.22, And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Then besides grace, Paul says that our speech should also be seasoned with salt. Now what does that mean? Well, imagine drinking a bowl of soup that has absolutely no salt in it at all. Perhaps the cook forgot that day to add the salt and the soup tastes awfully bland and undrinkable. But then you add some salt to it and all of a sudden, the soup becomes nice and enjoyable. I don't know about you, but I have certainly experienced it for myself, especially in those days when I had to cook for myself. It's miserable, but it's true. Salt really changes the taste of your cooking. Remarkable what a little salt can do. So what does speech seasoned with salt 
mean? One New Testament scholar puts it this way, a discussion seasoned with thought became a way of referring to an interesting, stimulating, and an enjoyable conversation. Interesting, stimulating, and enjoyable conversation. In other words, Christians are to seek to make their speech interesting and engaging rather than dull and bland. And they are to do so especially when speaking about spiritual matters or matters relating to the faith. I like how someone puts it when he says, according to the old saying, you can lead a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink. That's true, but you can feed him salt. The idea is that salt will create thirst and that in, that in turn will lead the animal to drink the water. So to the Christian, should endeavour to speak in such a way that would create a thirst and a desire for the word of God and for things spiritual. Well, finally, the last part of verse 6 says that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man, which means you should speak appropriately to every person as he or she has need. So depending on the person that you are speaking with, whether he's a believer or not a believer, or what kind of believer he may be, then you adjust your speech accordingly. So for example, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient unto all men. It would not be appropriate for you to comfort the unruly on the one hand, neither would it be appropriate to warn or to admonish the person who is faint-hearted and weak. And so verse 6 teaches us that the new man's speech should be first gracious, secondly engaging, seasoned with salt, and thirdly it should be appropriate. Alright, this evening we've considered what the speech of the new man sounds like. It's prayerful and thankful, filled with the gospel, consistent with the way that we conduct ourselves, and always gracious. As we close, I'd like us to take away two thoughts, two lessons. First, brethren, let us take some time to examine our own speech, especially with regard to unbelievers. Let us examine our speech, especially with regard to unbelievers. Are we prayerful and thankful to the Lord? And is that reflected in our speech? whether privately or in the hearing of others? Are we seeking to be gracious always in our speaking and to season our speech with salt? And are we looking out for and making use of windows of opportunity to reach out to those who are outside the kingdom of Christ? It doesn't have to be a lengthy sermon or lecture or discourse. Sometimes just a word or two can make all the difference. The story was told of a man by the name of William Thomas who lived in South Wales, not far from where Auntie Shirley stays, in the 1930s. He was about 70 years old and he was a nasty and a profane man who often went to the pub and often got drunk. In fact, he was so nasty that the people in the pub didn't want to drink with him uh, and he was often alone by himself. But one day while he was in the pub, he overheard some men who were sitting on another table saying that they had been to a certain chapel in their town and heard the preacher saying that there was hope for everyone and that no one was without hope. 
Well, this aroused William Thomas's curiosity, and he decided to, to go to the chapel that Sunday evening to, to hear this preacher. When he got to the church gate, he stood there for a while, and he didn't have the courage to go on in, and he eventually went home. Then the next Sunday came, he, he went, but this time he arrived late, and he realized that the service had already started, and so he decided he wouldn't go in. Then the third Sunday, he goes, and he's again walking around at the gate of the church, hesitating, wondering what he should do. One man in the church happened to observe William Thomas outside, and he went and called to him, Are you coming in, Bill? Come and sit with me. William Thomas went in that night, and he was converted to Christ. The preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It wasn't anything spectacular, was it? Just a little attentiveness on the part of that member in the church and a simple but warm invitation to William to come in and sit with him. The Apostle Paul says, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without redeeming or making best use of the time. But second brethren, let us often be in prayer that our speech may sound more and more like our Saviour. Let us often be in prayer that our speech may sound more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Saviour was a man of prayer, a man of thankfulness, a man whose speech was full of grace and seasoned with salt. Even so much so that the, the soldiers who had been sent to arrest him in John chapter 7 testified to the chief priests and the Pharisees, saying, Never man spake like this man. Christ alone is the perfect man with a perfect speech. All of us still far, fall far short, and we need to pray continually and look to the Lord Jesus for grace to overcome the sins of our lips and to speak more and more like our Saviour. Well, after that night, William Thomas after his conversion under the ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones, he continued to struggle with a profane tongue and with ungodly language. Remember, he had spoken that way all his life. All his life, he had been used to using profanities, dirty words very frequently, so that even to say one sentence without such language was just foreign to him. But after his conversion, he became more aware of his sin, and he would be often stricken with guilt in his heart, taken with misery and despair every time such ungodly words proceeded from his mouth. Then one morning, when he had just gotten up from bed and he was uh, gathering his clothes to change into, he couldn't find his socks and he was very frustrated. He opened the bedroom door and he called out to his wife saying, I can't find the blank socks. Where are the blank things in the house? And as soon as he said that, as soon as he heard himself say that, he was filled with horror and he fell back on his bed. And in utter despair, he cried out unto the Lord, O Lord, cleanse my tongue. O Lord, I can't even ask for a pair of socks without swearing. Please have mercy on me and give me a clean tongue. And strangely, as he got up from his bed, he knew that the Lord had done for him 
what he could never do for himself. His prayer had been heard, and from that day on, there was not a profane or filthy word that came out of his mouth. Jesus had given him a new cleanness and a new calmness in his speech. Now the Lord may not always answer our prayers for cleansing in such an immediate way. For some of us, we may have to struggle with a profane tongue or some other sin and temptation for a long time, but brethren, don't lose heart. Keep on praying, or as the Apostle Paul teaches us in verse 2, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Well, may the Lord grant that we may all sound more and more like our Saviour as we look to Him continually and rely on His grace alone. Amen.